You're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. Well, a little while ago, uh, my daughter, my daughter's dollhouse was pulled out of storage in our house, and we opened it up for our granddaughter to be able to enjoy and play with. Mia is a year and a half, and she utterly loves this thing. Uh, Already she knows how to set up furniture around the dollhouse and she puts the two babies in their cribs and she gets mommy to feed them in their high chairs and she puts them to bed. She even puts the babies on the potty and with her own sound effects, she gives these little babies an opportunity to relieve themselves. But wouldn't, it's very cute when a toddler does it, isn't it? But could you imagine if your 30-year-old neighbor, you saw him tomorrow out on his driveway playing with a dollhouse? It would be a little bit weird, wouldn't it? Maybe not unusual for this day and age, but it would be weird. Well, this is what we find today. Ezekiel, the 30-year-old prophet, he's in chapter 4, and he's out playing house, outside his house. Chapters 5 to 7, we see him acting out a bunch of other things outside his house. Weird, you bet they will be. Even for this day, even for his day, his neighbors thought he was weird. They thought he was sort of the town entertainment. Because of these next few chapters, there have been actual studies done, psychological studies on the mental health of the prophets of the Bible. They did weird stuff. And we have to work out some of that kind of stuff for us today. Now, in order to figure out why Ezekiel did the things that he did, we really have to kind of know what happened prior to Ezekiel coming on the scene and being in Babylon. If you remember, going back about 300 years into Ezekiel and Israel's past, King Solomon, the king, after King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two parts. The northern kingdom, which was called Israel still, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And a succession of idolatrous kings kind of came up year, generation after generation. Israel in the north was invaded and just kind of got absorbed by the Assyrian Empire. And then later, the Assyrians are defeated by the Babylonians in 605 BC, and the Babylonians have invaded and exiled the people of God in Judah, and they've taken them to to Babylon. It was during the second of the three sieges on Jerusalem and Judah that Ezekiel and many others were taken in exile to Babylon. And this is where we find the book of Ezekiel opening up for us. And in chapters 1 to 3, we saw how the prophet gets this personal visit from the Lord himself in a grand vision of a glorious throne chariot coming out of the north. And after that, Ezekiel is given a scroll to eat, a scroll that was full of the words of God, we're told, which contained a message of lament and mourning and woe. After which, he is called and commissioned to bring that message to his fellow exiles, He is supposed to act as a watchman, an ambassador, a commissionary to call the people of God to repentance by speaking the very words of God to them. God warned him if he refused, which he did for a minute, but if he refused, God would hold, told him that the blood of his fellow exiles would be on his hands. Yahweh had given his people plenty of time to turn back to him. But they continued to rebel. And after nearly a thousand years since Sinai, God's patience had finally worn out. God's judgment was now going to befall them. And while the words were written, the words that were written on the scroll that he had to eat were full of lament and mourning and woe, 
according to Ezekiel, the scroll still tastes like honey. Why? Because as heart-wrenching as their judgments were going to be, this was the only way to be brought back to God. Perhaps this last week, you have been able, in response to the message, been able to think about and pray for those in your life network that are living in rebellion to the Lord. And I hope the sobering reminder that Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3 gave to us is that we too are responsible to share the words of God with people. And now, oh boy, today, we have a journey to go on. So turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 4. We're going to read chapter 4 and a little bit into chapter 5. You there with me? I put it up on the overhead here, and that's good, but I encourage you to use your Bibles. And again, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew ahead of you. Ezekiel chapter 4. Now, son of man, take a block of clay, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it. Erect siege works against it. Build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it, and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your face toward it. It will be under siege, and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the people of Israel. Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the people of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years on their, of their sin. So for 390 days you will bear the sin of the people of Israel. After, after you have finished this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the people of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. Turn your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, and with your arm bared, prophesy against her. I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of the siege. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentil, millet and spelt. Put them in a storage jar. Use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food to eat each day and eat it at set times. Also measure out a sixth of a hen of water and drink it at set times. Eat the food as you would a loaf of barley bread. Bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. The Lord said, in this way the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, not so, sovereign Lord. I have never defiled myself. From my youth until now, I have never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. No impure meats has ever entered my mouth. Very well, he said. I will let you bake your bread over cow dung instead of human excrement. He then said to me, son of man, I am about to cut off the food supply in Jerusalem. The people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair. For food and water will be scarce. They will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. Chapter 5. Now, son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and beard. Then take a set of scales and divide up your hair. 
When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair inside the city. Take a third and strike it with a sword all around the city. And scatter a third to the wind. For I will pursue them with drawn sword. But take a few hairs and tuck them away into the folds of your garment. Again, take a few of these and throw them into the fire and burn them up. A fire will spread from there to all of Israel. I'll stop there. Since these chapters are a bit odd, I think an odd sermon point would probably be in order here. So our first point for today is this. Number one, will God's people knuckle up or knuckle under? Will God's people knuckle up or knuckle under? Did you ever play Bloody Knuckles as a kid? Do you know that game? Uh, Maybe you'll catch on in a second. The rules of the game are simple. First, you agree to play the game with one other person a certain number of rounds. Then each combatant makes a fist with both of their hands and places their fists in front of each other. The person who's chosen to go first gets to take his fist and smash them against the knuckles of your knuckles. If If you flinch, he gets to go again. That's not considered another turn. That's considered, still considered his turn. And it continues until, until he catches you unaware. This is not considered an extra turn, as I said. You continue to go at this game until both of you have hit the number of rounds. And then you switch roles. You keep doing this until you and your opponent decide who the winner is usually by way of one person bowing out because it just becomes too painful. Someone is usually begging to quit. But you agreed to play a certain number of rounds, and so you did. You can't quit. Both Israel and God had agreed to go the distance with each other. Their history together wouldn't be without challenges. They would be going knuckle to knuckle against each other at times. But they agreed to knuckle up and go the distance regardless of the pain. God would be their God and Israel his chosen people. But now they're in Babylon and all because they knuckled under and gave up on God. We, we read chapters 4 and 5 and we see Ezekiel enacting a number of scenes of judgment upon Jerusalem. It seems like child's play. But the reason for this enactment, these enactments, was to catch the people's attention. First in chapter 4, we're told that he's supposed to make a brick, just something, a mud block, a clay block. And he's supposed to use it as a model to represent the city of Jerusalem under siege. Then he's supposed to lie down on his left side, 390 days. And then he's supposed to bear the sins of Israel. Then on his right side, 40 days, bearing the sins of Judah. And each day represents a year that they have sinned against God up until now. During the 390 days, he was made to live off of war rations, meager war rations, to reflect how scarce food and water would be during the siege of Jerusalem. Constrained, God tells him to cook his food over his own poop. But then he's told in chapter 5, after that, that he could cook it under, uh, over cow poop just so that he wouldn't have to defile himself. But then he's told in chapter 5 to shave his head and his beard, something that an, an Orthodox Jew would have a hard time with. He's commanded to weigh and divide up his hair, 
God says that when the siege comes to an end, burn a third of the hair inside the city, that, you know, that city scene that he built a block with, and then take a third of the hair, chop it up with a sword, and scatter it around the city. And then he's supposed to take the last third and scatter them to the wind. But then Ezekiel is told, take a few hairs, though. Tuck them away in the folds of your garment. This was the hope of a remnant of people that would eventually escape and be saved from all of this. Then there's a bit of a transition from Ezekiel's role-playing to the reasons for these judgments. Let's pick it up again in verse 5, Ezekiel 5, 5. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations, with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness, she had rebelled against my laws and decrees, more than the nations and the countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem. And I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. Because of all your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. As we've already discussed last week and earlier, for many generations, Israel had lived as a rebellious nation to the Lord. As God says in verse 5, that he chose them to stand out among the nations around them, to be his special chosen people, but their wickedness became worse than the nations around them. They had become an embarrassment as they rejected the covenants they had made with Yahweh. Here's the beginning of these covenants with Father Abraham. So turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. It's way at the very beginning of the book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 17. Verses 1 to 9. Remember, this is Abraham, Abram, as he was first called. And God had called him out of Ur, which is Babylon, many generations later. He calls him out of Babylon to be a specially chosen people, person, to give him a land and descendants. He says this, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will now be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful and I will make nations of you. Kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, the promised land, the whole west, eastern side of the Mediterranean, all that land where, now reside, where you now reside as a foreigner, that whole land of Canaan, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my, com my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. 
Did you notice the promise of an everlasting possession of land and, 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 and descendants and the sovereign protection over them as they are in the land? That's the covenant relationship promise between God and what will become Israel. But there was a condition. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. The condition to those blessings was to uphold the covenants by believing loyalty. What was that supposed to look like? Well, as time went on, God would renew his covenants with them, like after the Israelites' exodus out of Egypt in what is called the Mosaic Covenant, named after Moses, obviously, also called the Sinai Covenant because it happened at Mount Sinai. And listen to what what he says here. Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6. You yourselves, this is God speaking, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And here we're told that the basis of the blessings of the covenants was believing loyalty to Yahweh, just as you see in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20? The first three are very explicit. And God spoke all these words. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath it, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold, you, not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And so on, one through ten. And just like with the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant was conditional. Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, lay out the blessings that follow obedience. But it also lays out the curses that follow rejecting the covenants. Let's just turn to Leviticus, just a couple of chapters or books over. Leviticus 26, 14 to 17. Leviticus 26, 14 to 17. But I will not... But if you, sorry, if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror. Wasting diseases and fever will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will... Be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. God had said that if you worship other gods, if you do these things, then curses will befall you. Israel knew what was at stake. So did God. God made these covenants with Abraham and his descendants, and then Moses, with full intention 
that no matter what happens, no matter what Israel does with the covenants, he said, I am going to be faithful to them. I am going to have a people raised up from Abraham and Sarah, and I am going to bring them into the promised land. They will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Separate from all the other nations on the earth, they will be my prized possession. And no matter how bad Israel gets, God's sovereignty will ensure it. God never gives up on his covenant promises, ever. Yahweh and Israel are locked into a game of bloody knuckles, and God will not back down. He will never knuckle under. And as bad as it gets, and bad it gets, listen to chapter, Ezekiel chapter 5. Let's go back there. Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 5 to 10. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I am against you, I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishments on you in the sight of the nations. Because of your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary, that is the temple, with, your, with all your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will shave you I will not look on you with pity or spare you. Sounds real harsh, doesn't it? But this is a scene of God coming to judge his people for their idolatry. Not because they made a few mistakes along the way, but because they put an affront to the sovereignty of God in all of their holy places in Jerusalem and beyond. Not only did they set up idols in the high places around Israel, but they defiled the very temple of God, the most sacred of spaces itself. They set up idols and engaged in worship of other gods in the sanctuary of the house of Yahweh. And so God says, enough is enough. My patience has run out. You have defiled sacred space, and now I have to act against you because I love you. And my instruments of justice are famine and plague and wild beasts and the sword. Ezekiel 5, uh, 16 to 20, we have this. When I shoot at you with my deadly and destructive arrows of my famine, I will shoot to destroy you. I will bring more and more famine upon you and cut off your food supply. I will send famine and wild beasts against you and, you will leave, and they will leave you childless. Plague and bloodshed will sweep through, uh, through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. You may have noticed the familiar connection here. When Yahweh stretched out his hand against Egypt in the days of Moses. When God brought similar judgments upon the Egyptians in order to deliver Israel from their slavery to Pharaoh. At that time, God makes it clear that he was the one who brought the plagues upon Egypt. If you remember, in the blessings and curses passage of Deuteronomy 32, Leviticus 26, and there are others like Habakkuk 3, you read very similar wording 
for God's instruments of judgment. Listen to Deuteronomy 33, verse 23. I will heap calamity upon them and send my arrows against them. I will send wasting famine against them, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. I will send against them the fangs of wild beasts and vipers uh, that will glide in the dust. Famine, pestilence, plague, wild beasts. According to commentators like Michael Heiser and Daniel Block and others, each of these instruments actually has a name associated with them in parallel passages in the Hebrew. Reshef meaning plague, ra'ab, meaning famine, keteb, meaning pestilence, behemoth, meaning beasts. These are actually, in the ancient Near East, the names of deities, the gods of the nations. They're actually names of divine beings from Israel's pagan neighbors. So an Israelite or someone in the ancient Near Eastern people, like those in Babylon, when they read arrows of famine, for instance, they would have thought, refesh, reshef. Commentator Daniel Block says extra-biblical texts indicate that the symbol of the god Reshef was the arrow. Ezekiel isn't necessarily saying that Yahweh is going to use foreign gods to punish the Israelites. Instead, like Daniel Block says, in normative monotheistic Yahwehism, in other words, Judaism, ancient Judaism, Yahweh's powers are comprehensive. He assumes the functions that others ascribe to rival gods. And that's exactly what God did in Egypt, if you remember. Each of the plagues that the Lord brought upon the Egyptians, like blood and flies and pestilence and darkness, all of those calamities were supposed to be under the control of the gods of Egypt. But God shows his own sovereignty over any and all challengers that he is supreme among all the gods, above all the gods, by taking those as his weapons that were once attributed to other gods. And once God gets involved, no one can stop him because he is sovereign over all the gods. But now he's doing the same here in Ezekiel's oracles of judgment. At one time, these were God's instruments of, to judge the, idol, the idolatry of Israel's enemies. But now these are God's instruments to judge them. How low They have sunk as a nation. And how far they have forsaken their covenants. Point number two. How far will God go when his people go too far? How far will God go when his people go too far? I wonder if you've ever wondered that in our generation. Ezekiel 6. Let's read some of this. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against the mountains of Israel. Prophesy against them and say, You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the sovereign Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to the mountains and hills, to the ravines and valleys. I am about to bring a sword against you and I will destroy your high places. Your altars will be demolished and your incense altars will be smashed. I will slay your people in front of your your idols. I will lay the dead bodies of the Israelites in front of their idols and I will scatter your bones around their altars. Wherever you live, the towns will be laid waste and the high places demolished so that your altars will be laid waste and devastated, your idols smashed and ruined, your incense altars broken down, and what you have made wiped, will, be, will be wiped out. Your people will fall slain among you and you will know that I am the Lord. But I will spare some 
For some of you will escape the sword when you are scattered among the lands of the nations. Then in the nations where they have been uh, carried captive, those who escape will remember me. He's talking about the exiles now. How I have been grieved by the adult, their adulterous hearts, which have turned away from me, and by their eyes, which have lusted after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evil that they have done and for all their detestable practices. And they will know that I am the Lord. I did not threaten in vain to bring this calamity on them. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Strike your hands together and stamp your feet and cry out, Alas, because of all the wicked and detestable practices of the people of Israel, for they will fall by the sword, famine, and plague. One who is far away will die of the plague. One who is near will fall by the sword. And anyone who survives and is spared for, will die of famine. So I will pour out my wrath on them. And they will know that I am the Lord. When their people lie slain among their idols, around their altars, and on every high hill and on the mountaintops, under every spreading tree and every leafy oak, places where they have offered fragrant incenses to their idols. And I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land a desolate waste from the desert uh, to Bedal. Whether they live, then they will know that I am the Lord. For whatever reason, God's people forgot one of the most basic tenets of Covenants 101. Namely, Yahweh is Lord. Yahweh is Lord. Four times Yahweh says that he will bring all these judgments upon them so that they will know that he is the Lord. In Ezekiel 6, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet that God's people have crushed his heart, verse 9, by turning away from him and worshiping idols. He tells them in no uncertain terms that discipline, that the discipline that they are receiving is not random, but deserved. Since they have repeatedly committed adultery by having other gods along with him. So he promises to destroy the sacred spaces, including the temple, where his people have worshipped other gods and have said that they worship them. How should we think about God's judgments in the Old Testament, this side of the cross, where we're looking at now? For whatever reason, maybe it's the century that we live in, or maybe it's that we think that no matter what we do, the cross will magically protect us from God's judgments. What we need to remember is that like the covenants of the Old Testament, the new covenant with Jesus still demands... Not church attendance, but our unswerving loyalty and obedience to Jesus as Lord. If we fail to remain faithful, we have no guarantee of the benefits of the new covenant. Salvation under either old covenant or new covenant of Jesus has the same requirement of its followers. Believing loyalty. Let's just go to a New Testament book, the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 23 to 31. Hebrews 10, 23 to 31. The writer says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is, what? Faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, 
Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day approaching. What day is that? The day of the Lord, the day of God's vengeance. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friends, participating in the new covenant of Jesus is not like paying your dues for your Costco membership. Participating in the new covenant costs Jesus his blood, and it costs us our life too. That's what baptism signifies, that we died with Christ, that we don't pick up our old life again. We exchange our life for his, and that comes with the undying daily declaration that Jesus is our Lord. What he commands, we obey, proving we worship him. Not just more than anything else in our life. Not just above everything else in our life, but that we worship him alone. Only him. And this side of the cross, God is still as jealous for you as he was for Israel. And from time to time, when we stray, he will let us know. He will not tolerate us giving our devotion to other things. And from time to time, the Lord has to correct our passions. He will first attempt to turn us back to himself gently. Maybe something in the word of God will strike you and you'll go, yeah, I need to change. Something needs to happen. Maybe you'll hear that still, small voice. Maybe you'll get a correction from a friend or a family member or a spouse. But if we say no to him long enough, the Lord's commitment to the covenant of Jesus will force his hand and he will have to discipline us. His hope, his aim, his promise is to bring you back. Usually in the form of some challenge or hardship that he brings into our life so that we will repent and obey. So how do you know when what you're experiencing isn't just a hardship, maybe that it's God's discipline. How do you know the difference? Well, that's not an easy answer, actually. As a pastor for 30-plus years now, I've seen many people face hardships. And for many reasons, for whatever reason, when people experience hardships, many of them refuse to ask a simple question. So what's the question? This is it. Lord... Is there any place in my life that I have forgotten in any way that you are Lord of me? Let me read that to you once again. Lord, is there any place in my life that I have forgotten in any way that you are Lord of me? We look at the idolatry of these ancient peoples like in Ezekiel's day and we think idols and burning incense on altars and all that kind of stuff and we think, well, I haven't done that. 
so we don't think we're idolaters. But what we learn from these four chapters in Ezekiel is that idolatry is simply denying the Lord His Lordship over us and setting up other things in the places of our life that He should have the supremacy. Unfortunately, I've seen too many people, people who claim to be Christians, refuse to ask that simple question, Lord, is there anything, is there any place in my life that I have forgotten in any way that you are Lord of me? That really should be a daily question we ask ourselves, shouldn't it? Unfortunately, I've seen far too many people, maybe you have as well, people who once believed, people we care about, who have turned away from the Lord and have outright denied His Lordship in any area of their life. Ultimately denying their Christian faith altogether. What it comes down to was what we learned last week. For far too long they did what was right in their own eyes and they denied the Lord His Lordship over them. It starts out small. It gets real big. Have you asked yourself the question lately? Lord, is there any place in my life that I have forgotten in any way that you are Lord of me? Point number three, the end is near. Verse chapter seven, I won't read the whole thing. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says to the land of Israel, the end. And the end has come upon the four corners of the land. The end is now upon you, and I will unleash my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you in pity. I will not spare you. I will surely repay you for your conduct and for the detestable practices among you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Disaster, unheard of disaster. See, it comes. The end has come. The end has come. It has aroused itself against you. See, it comes. Doom has come upon you, upon you who dwell in the land. The time has come. The day is near. There is panic, not joy, on the mountains. Verse 26. Calamity upon calamity will come, and rumor upon rumor. They will go searching for a vision from the prophet. Priestly instruction in the law will cease. The council of the elders will come to an end. The king will mourn. The prince will be clothed with despair. And the hands of the people of the land will tremble. I will deal with them according to their conduct. And by their own standards I will judge them. Then they will know that I am the Lord. For Jerusalem, the time for repentance had passed. No matter how secure or satisfied they felt in doing what was right in their own eyes, worshiping other gods, Yahweh would prove that their confidence was unwarranted. Do you sometimes feel, maybe sometimes wonder how long the Lord's patience will last for for us in the West? Last week, Buffalo Buffalo Bills football player uh, Damar Hamlin Hamlin uh, suffered a cardiac arrest on the, on the field on Monday. Right in the middle of the broadcast, ESPN host uh, Dan Orlovsky prays for him. And social media just goes nuts thinking this is the most wonderful thing ever. And it was great. Because before you knew it, both teams were on their knees on the field begging God for this man's life. Some called it brave. I hope that demonstration of faith in Jesus with the bending of the knee 
will convince millions of people to joyfully put their trust in him. But I think if you've been a believer long enough, you know that these flames of faith are oftentimes short-lived with people who are obsessed with living life on their own terms. And that's usually the defining moment, isn't it? When you explain that believing in Jesus is more than just believing, that it will mean loyal obedience as well, that's when the crowd turns you off, maybe even turns against you. That's when you get called close-minded and judgmental. They like the loving, prayer-answering Jesus. They don't like the Lord Jesus so much. The harsh reality is that God's patience is only the length of one lifetime. And none of us know how long that lifetime will be. Everybody's end is coming. And that's when God's ultimate patience runs out. And then the consequences of idolatry and rejecting him come due. Have you ever noticed how much flack you get when you even suggest that to people? (laughs) It's one of the biggest offenses in modern Western living to suggest that people will be judged for defying God's rules and rejecting his lordship. How dare God expect obedience from me? Immediately their anger rises and we get shut out of the conversation. No matter matter how loud they protest, you can't cancel God. God's vengeance is on the horizon. In the words of God through the prophet Ezekiel, the end is near. And this will be the final judgment. I will deal with them according to their conduct, God says in Ezekiel 6 or 7. And by their own standards, I will judge them. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I think it's important that you and I who know God and benefit from his covenants that we figure out how to tell people about their need for Jesus. That we figure out how to do that in a way that elevates the love and the mercy of God but that also doesn't downplay sin and the need for repentance. Far too many people come into the Christian community of faith believing in Jesus without repenting of their sins. And that's why it's not that easy, even in the church sometimes, among the people of the covenants, to talk about sin and obedience and repentance. One of the biggest challenges in modern Western church is to suggest that people come under the lordship of Jesus. Who are you, pastor, to tell me how to live my Christian life? You see this especially when you tell people that the Bible commands baptism and that they should be baptized as believers. The most basic obedience for a believer and they refuse to be baptized. They're not refusing me. They're refusing the Lord and His Word. And that's just baptism. If they can't be baptized, what else are they refusing? That's why small group Bible studies are so necessary for us as a people. But that's also why in small groups, the topic of accountability is so tough. That's why people don't participate in small groups. In fact, they'd much rather do what they want than be held accountable for how they live a holy life. But a small group of believers is to, is to be together to help one another grow in those areas that we're all deficient and we all struggle with. We're all on a journey. None of us are at the same place in that journey, but 
We all journey together. No one likes to be told how to live and no one likes to feel guilty. I get that. But what better place to be vulnerable and to learn obedience than in a small group of believers so that we can pray for one another and build each other up and encourage one another, as Hebrews says, that we don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. You and I need to ask ourselves the question often, Lord, is there any place in my life that I have forgotten in any way that you are Lord of me? That's a question we need to ask every day, isn't it? And let's do that right now. Worship team, why don't you come up? Let's get prepared to sing just one more song. Lord, I get that I'm a pastor. Sometimes that weighs very heavily on me, especially when I have to bring a word like this to your people. And those who love your word, to us this is as sweet as honey, even though it's full of woe and mourning and and lament. It's as sweet as honey because we know that by living according to your covenants, we can escape all that and that all these things come into our life from time to time so that you can make us more holy. And we are so grateful that you are a gentle God, that you don't just automatically impose your wrath upon us for no good reason. Lord, you bring us discipline first, quiet, gentle, until you're forced to go further. Lord, in this moment, may we all ask ourselves this very poignant question. And may this be our prayer each day of this week and maybe for the rest of our lives. Lord, maybe you could pray this right now with me. Lord, is there any place in my life that I have forgotten in any way that you are Lord of me? Only each of us can resolve that in our own hearts and minds today, Lord. And we pray that we will never forget that question. Amen.